we've come to this portion of chapter 6 where we're going to open the fifth seal. And the, you know, the first four seals that were opened that we saw last week, those, those four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Um, the first four seals that Jesus opened, they, they revealed the tribulations and judgments that will occur on the earth during what is called the church age. Uh, and what is the church age? We call the church age that period from Christ's first coming to his second coming, when he comes again. So he came the first time as a uh, babe born in a manger, lived 33 years, went to the cross, and made atonement for our sin on the cross. That was why he came the first time. That was his purpose, to pay for our sin, to redeem a people for himself. The next time he comes back, he's coming back as king of kings and lord of lords. And what we see in, in, in these seals is the Lord is revealing to John and showing him this is history from the resurrection of Christ to his second coming, his final return. This is what's going to be happening in the world. And so those four horsemen were a picture of the judgment that God is pouring out. Now, the fifth seal that we're going to open today takes us back into heaven and shows us what's going on in heaven during this time. And that's what we're going to see in verses 9 through 11. So let's look at that, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe, and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. That's a hard passage, these three verses. That's, that's a lot of stuff here. And, and yet I want to say it from the outset that Christ never hid the fact that his followers would suffer and would be killed for his sake. He never hid that fact. The Bible doesn't hide that. If we look at Matthew 24, verse 9, what did Jesus say? Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So he couldn't have made it any clearer of, uh, of what it means to follow him, of what will happen to those who follow him. And it's sure as a far cry from those <laughs> televangelists who are talking about this prosperity gospel that says, if you trust Jesus, everything's going to be fine. You're going to be rich. You're going to be liked. You're going to be prosperous, healthy, wealthy, all that good stuff. And yet Christ from the beginning told us, no, this is not the case. As a matter of fact, you must die to yourself, give up your dreams, die to everything you know, even forsake father and mother if you have to, and follow me. And as he said here, probably die for me because you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And so it, that prophecy of Christ has been fulfilled. It's been fulfilled. The first martyr in 35 AD was Stephen, a preaching deacon from the church there in Jerusalem. He's preaching the gospel and he is killed because of the hatred in the hearts of those listening. They picked up rocks and they stoned him as he proclaimed the love of Christ for them. And, and that was the first martyr. And then we see, uh, you know, during the time John is writing, well, well, right after that, by the way, in about 35, uh, around 54 AD, all the way to 68 AD, 
the Emperor Nero, <laughs> who was notorious for persecuting the church, was on the scene. And so there were thousands killed under Nero who would use Christians as torches to light his path to his house. He put people on stakes, set them on fire, Christians, and many, many other ways that he would, would do. They, they would dress Christians in wild animal cloths and, and furs and put them in the arena and, and let wild beasts out to devour them. I mean, this was, this was some of the things that were happening. And then, during the time of John's writing of Revelation, you've got Emperor Domitian, and he was ramping up a new wave of violence against the, the believers beginning in 95 AD. And so all of this is, again, fulfillment to what Christ said, right? You will be hated for my sake, and you'll be persecuted, and, you, and you'll be killed. And it continued happening. Matter of fact, every apostle except John was martyred, was murdered for the gospel. And John was exiled on an island. Hebrews eleven thirty six through 38 give us a record of, and a history of God's people and, and what they endured. Listen to this. It says in verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. So there's an account all through Scripture that Christians will suffer persecution. And then in 1563, so moving right down the centuries of unbroken persecution, 1563, a man by the name of John Fox wrote a book entitled The History of the Acts and Monuments of the Church. And through the years, that book became known as Fox's Book of Martyrs, where he documents the cases Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases of Christians through the centuries that were burnt at the stake or sawn in two or stretched to death. I mean, this, this is history, folks. This is re, real stuff, and it's exactly what Jesus said would happen. And then, in, and by the way, he covered time all the way up to the Reformation. So that he covered from the, the, the early church all the way to the Reformation of Christians being murdered for their faith. And then in 1967, a man by the name of Richard Wormbrand, who was tortured for his faith in Romania, he founded an organization called Voice of the Martyrs, which is in existence today, has been ever since, and, and, and their main purpose is to document the persecution and murders of Christians around the world. And it's estimated today, and a conservative estimate puts the number of Christian martyrs around the world at around 20,000 a year. That's a very conservative estimate. There are some who have estimated as high as 100,000 Christians around the world are murdered for the sake of Christ every year. So again, this is a prophetic fulfillment of what Christ said. If nothing else, what we can do with this truth of history is to realize that what Jesus says is true. When he said, you'll be hated, the world will hate you for my namesake, and they will persecute and kill you, it happened. It happened. And there's collateral damage, by the way. Let's talk about this, this idea of these four seals being opened that we saw last week and the judgment of God being poured out, which dovetails beautifully into Romans chapter 1. Because we see, as a result of, of those, those seals, we see that God has released his wrath against all those who suppress the truth of God and worship and serve the creature more than the creator, as Paul tells us in Romans. 
it, this is exactly what John's revealing in heaven, or has have, what Jesus is showing John when he opens those seals. He's saying, this is what the world looks like when God gives you over to your reprobate mind. He gives you over to your own darkness. All these judgments are simply God allowing mankind to do what is in the darkest recesses of his heart. And as a result of that, as a result of man being given over to himself and his natural hatred for God burning so vehemently, Christians suffer persecution and death as a collateral result of God's judgment on, on the lost and allowing them to be as wicked as they want to be. Who are they going to turn against? They hate God. This is what God is saying. You, you hate me so much, I'm going to give you over. And now that hatred has nowhere to go but towards the people who represent God. And there we see these martyrs. Basically collateral damage, if you will, of the judgment of God falling down upon a world of sinners who hate him and therefore hate his people. And that's the cause of martyrdom that we see in verse 9. Let's notice a little bit more about this. Let's read that verse again. Verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So all of us die, right? Everybody's going to die. Everybody's going to die of something, right? We all die sometime. But these lives were different and that they had been slain for the word of God. They had been slain for the witness that they bore concerning Jesus Christ. That, that's what a martyr is. The Greek word martyria, martyria, which, which literally means, it's where we get the word martyr, but in the Greek, the definition is a witness. To witness something, to witness to something, to, to pro promote and to, to proclaim something. And so like George Ladd says, every disciple of Jesus is in essence a martyr, a witness, and John has in view all believers who have suffered so or have so suffered. And, and so I think we, we need to understand this, that really if you're saved by the grace of God, if you follow Jesus Christ, then you are basically surrendering to the office of martyr. You're saying, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a martyr. What, if nothing else in the sense that I'm a witness I'm, a, I'm, I'm an unab unabashed, unashamed witness to the glory of Christ. And if that ends in my death, so be it. As we look at verse 11, I'm sorry, of, of chapter 12, this is the glorious news of, of this, this witness. And, 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 and we kind of hit on it a little bit in our prayers. But, but notice, notice this, this beautiful verse in, in Revelation 12, 11. And they, and this is talking about all believers who stand and witness for Christ, which is basically all true believers. You, you can't help it. If you're really born again and regenerated and have been changed, you will witness for Christ. But here's what it says in verse 11. They, Christians, have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb, and look, and by the word of their testimony. The word of their witness. <laughs> For they loved not their lives even unto death. Even unto death. So these are martyrs for sure. 
but they're also witnesses. And this is where we all have to begin as Christians. This is where we are. We witness for the truth of Christ. We stand up for the word of God. And if that means we're arrested, persecuted, thrown in prison, kicked out of the club, not invited to the cool kids party, whatever you want to call persecution, if that happens, then so be it. It's funny too, what, what we in America rank as persecution. Some of those last things I said, not being invited to somebody's party or maybe losing a job or something like that. And we thought, oh, it's persecution. Man, we don't know anything about the depths of the hatred of mankind's heart toward God. And when some of these people get a hold of a Christian who represents God, the depths they go to torture and, and to, to, to hurt, <laughs> to separate families, to watch one family member have to watch the other family member tortured and then even killed. We don't even understand that. But it doesn't, it, don't get me wrong, it's still important for us in America to stand and to suffer some of these things I mentioned that aren't as severe as that. But the day's coming, folks. The day's coming. Notice, though, as we think about this, this thing of martyrdom, I want to show you God's perspective on martyr, martyrs. In verse 9, again, look at this. There's, we, get, we gain this, this beautiful picture of what's happening by the location of these martyrs. So notice this. Again in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar. That's where they are. Under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. So where are these martyrs? They are under the altar of God. <laughs> and so this word soul is also translated life, the life of a person, the soul of, of a person, the, the emotional and intellectual and willful being. Our being is our soul, the real us. Now this body, the shell that the real us is encased in, just carries us around in a sense. We, the soul is what animates the body. This is so interesting to me when I think about this. The, the body is important because God made it for a purpose, right? Our bodies will be resurrected. So don't get Gnostic on me, Gnostics. Gnostics always taught that there's a difference between the spirit and the flesh. Flesh is bad. So anything physical in life, including the body, is a bad thing. And only the spirit, the ethereal, the, the, uh, the, you know, the, the floating on a cloud, that is what matters. And their idea is that the body will be done and gone and that's gone. And our spirits will be fluttering around in heaven. That's all that matters through eternity. But that's not what God did. God created us body, soul, and spirit. And that body was made for a reason. It will be resurrected. That's why the Bible talks so much about resurrection. Both body and soul will be resurrected. But here's the point. And why is that, by the way? Because he's making a physical eternity, a new heaven and a new earth, where these bodies are going to have to interact with other physical worlds, glorified bodies. And I know it's a whole other sermon, but let me get back. The souls, the life of an individual, the soul, the essence, the intellect and the emotion, all those things are bound up in our souls. It's like this. This is very interesting. My friend, Dr. Mike Tuttle, who I don't even know where he's at now, but I knew him back in the days of First Baptist Church of Alexandria. Then he went to Walter Reed. He was in the military. And then he ended up uh, waiting, uh, you know, being the doctor of any congressmen and, and folks in Washington 
up there, uh, whatever hospital that is that they all go to. Um, and he's a researcher. And, and just through the years, I've kind of stayed in touch with him. Research doctor through the years, brilliant. But back when he was in med school at NKU, before he was anything, he, I remember him telling me that they would have, have cadavers come in, right? And you know what a cadaver is? Greek for dead guy. I don't know. I don't, know if it's, I don't even know if it's Greek. I just know it's a, it's a dead person. It's a, and it's, they were fresh. They had to be fresh, fresh bodies. And don't ask me how to get those. But um, what they would do is they did these experiments with electroshocks, right? Elec electric charges. And this cadaver, this body, lifeless body, could be manipulated by sh shocking certain parts of the nervous system in the spinal cord. Literally, he said, you could open your eyes. They could raise a, a hand would move. I mean, like manipulating kind of a, a puppet, right? And, and what that showed, and he said, Greg, where are you going with all this? I know Halloween's around the corner, but <laughs> no, my point is they're manipulating with electric shock to help to move this physical body around. What manipulates us when we're not hooked up to the electrical shocks? Our souls, the, 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 God formed man out of the dust of the earth, the, this physical body. But then what does it say in Genesis? He breathed into the nostrils of Adam and he became a living soul. It's our souls that animate our bodies. It's our soul that is that real essence of our, our intellect that is. Now, all of it's real. Don't, again, don't get Gnostic. It's all made by God for a purpose. But at death, while we're waiting for the resurrection, this is what's so important about what we're learning in Revelation tonight. When a person dies, people ask me this all the time. What happens when a person dies? Here it is. When a person dies, the soul, all of our intellect, our, our emotions, our, 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 you know, we're, we're, we're alive, right? That soul is present with God, awaiting that body being resurrected one day and again reunited in a perfect, now glorified physical body and soul all in one. We can't imagine it, but it's coming. Now, if you're still with me, let's get back to this verse because what I want to talk about, the idea of life, right? The soul being the life. These lives who were taken are under the altar. And they are literally, when you think about that, 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 that phraseology, the life being under the altar, it reminds us of the altar of burnt offerings that were outside of the tabernacle, okay? There was, a, there was an altar of burnt offering where an animal was slain before you entered into the Holy of Holies. Now listen to this in Leviticus 4.7. It says, And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out Look at this, at the base of the altar, under the altar, a burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So there's something about this. The sacrifice of, of that animal, the blood, flowed under the altar. Now here's the point about that. This, this shows us, again, that not that these martyrs, not that a Christian when he dies is making some atoning sacrifice for his own sin. It's not that at all. But what it's showing is that we are a living sacrifice unto God. Like Paul said, our bodies, we, we have given to, to God. And we say, Lord, I want to glorify you by my life or by my death. That's what Paul said, right? He said, I will, I will glorify God whether it, in this body, whether it be by my life or by my death. And so these 
martyrs are a sweet sacrifice unto God under his altar. And also, by the way, when you think about it, the wicked humans, and listen, I love how one commentator put this. He said, the wicked humans may kill Christians from God's point, though. And again, a wicked human is killing a Christian vengefully and spitefully, right? Trying to get back at what they're saying about God. They don't agree, so they're going to kill Christians out of anger. But from God's point of view, their deaths are a special heavenly sacrifice. And that's what Paul expressed. This is what Paul said in Philippians 2, 16 through 18. Paul said, and this is toward the end of his life, he's speaking these things. He knows he's about to die, but notice how he words it. Notice what he words his death as being. He says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And look what he says. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. That's interesting. So Paul's saying, this is what we are. We, we serve God faithfully all of our lives, and then it comes time for us to die, and our deaths are nothing more than pouring ourselves out like, like, a, like a drink offering unto the Lord. And he said, I rejoice to be able to do that, and you should rejoice with me. Pretty interesting, huh? <laughs> this is a good test, right? Are you a Christian? Yeah, what's that mean? To be rich, happy, and have it my way all the time? No, it means that are you willing to pour your life, pour your life out as a drink offering unto God? No, thank you. Okay, then. You're probably not a Christian. You see my point? This is, this is where Paul's saying, hey, you will rejoice with me if you understand Christ like I understand Christ. If you understand what it means to be forgiven like I understand what it means to be forgiven. If we understand that we were destined for hell and for God's wrath for eternity, and yet we see how God, while I was yet a sinner, crushed his own son on my behalf, I am willing to pour my life out as a sacrifice of praise unto him, Paul's saying. And he said, you should be also Look at what he said in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 7. For I am ready. For I am already, he said. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And that's what every Christian should long to be able to say at the time of our death, right? That we were faithful. We fought a good fight. We've kept the faith. And now we are being poured out as a drink offering unto the Lord. All glory to him. And again, I, I know this is hard sometimes, and trust me, if a non-Christian hears this kind of preaching, they're like, you guys are wackos. And we get accused sometimes. Paul, this is why Christians were accused of strange doctrine. One thing, because they, they denounced the emperor as God, they were accused of being atheists because they denounced the emperor was God and that only Jesus was God. Well, they were called atheists. And then when, we, when they talked about communion and actually taking the body and blood of Christ, well, they were called cannibals. You guys are eating the blood, body and blood of Christ? Not really, but it's a symbol. <laughs> and the same is true with this kind of phraseology. This is symbolic, folks. We're not wanting to kill each other and pour each other's blood out as a sacrifice. That does sound strange. And, it's, and it can be demonic in some cults and groups. But we're talking symbolically here. That's what Revelation's about. That's what Paul's saying. He's symbolically saying, my life has been poured out as an offering unto God. That's what he said when he said that we are to make our lives a living sacrifice 
unto God. Present our lives a living sacrifice unto God. And so that's what God is doing. He's saying these people in life who have done that, they're under my altar. They're right here. I know them. They are a special sacrifice of praise to me. Now look at the cry of the martyr. We saw the cause. The cause of the martyr is their faithfulness. The cause of being a martyr is your witness for Christ, that you stand up for the word of God. Now look at the cry of these martyrs in verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It's a tough verse as well. When you think about this, now remember this, the, the time span of what's happening. Jesus Christ has come, paid our price on the cross, and has ascended into heaven. And from that time forward, the veils have been opened. Here's the point. Christ conquered Satan on the cross. He is done. He's defeated. He has no power over the people of God. Jesus has ascended into heaven and has all authority. He can take the scroll and open it. He, he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is ruling and reigning in that sense. And he is ruling his kingdom through the hearts of his people and the gospel. Paul, as we said last week, one of those riders on the white horse does. Many guys can say that's the gospel going forward and conquering. It is. The gospel conquers hearts to this day. It's still doing it. Now, does that mean that the enemy's not here? No, it doesn't. Just like in the World War II we talked about. When the war was over, the peace treaty was signed. Good night. I thought it was just a few months. I heard last week from knowledgeable folks. It was in the 1970s and 80s that there were still Japanese soldiers on uncharted South Pacific islands who still thought the war was going on. They had their guns. They would still attack people that came. Their, their uniforms were practically rotted off of them, but they didn't know. They didn't hear the news that the war was over and that victory had been declared. That's what Satan is, folks. The battle's over, but he's just flailing around here in the last moments of the campaign waiting until Christ finally comes and finally puts him in his place. But Christ is still ruling. He still won the victory. And so this is where we're at now. This is why God is pouring out judgment and it is already happening. People are being martyred. There's collateral damage in this war and those Christians are now in heaven. So this is right now. Revelation is not talking about something happening later. This is happening. It's been happening for centuries. The devil's fighting God's people. God's people are resisting him. They're standing firm in the faith and they're dying, but they're winning <laughs> because nothing can defeat those who have been bought by the blood of Christ. We're more than conquerors. And that's what Revelation is showing us. And here you've got these martyrs who are still waiting and their cry is, how long, O sovereign Lord? They admit that God is sovereign, that he's in control, but they still pray and say, how long, holy and true? How long before you judge and avenge our blood? Now, now, now when some hear this, they say, well, that's not a very Christian prayer. That's not very Christ-like. I thought we were supposed to pray for our enemies and forgive those who persecute us. And that is true. But that doesn't make this a non-Christian prayer. This is also a Christian prayer. This is. Why? They're not praying for selfish revenge for themselves, but they're praying that God's justice be done on earth for his glory. That's why. We, listen to David. David prayed this way. Psalm 7, verse 6. 
Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. David admits, God, you have appointed judgment. You are the one who judges. You are holy and righteous and true. Arise and bring yourself glory by vanquishing your enemies. That's a godly prayer. Again, it's not a selfish thing. It's a godly prayer. Jesus said the same thing in Luke chapter 18, verses 7 and 8. Listen to what he said. And will not God give justice to his elect? His elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. He will, he will give justice. God's judgment is coming. And those of his elect who are crying out, Lord, bring your justice, bring your kingdom. That's a good prayer. Yes, we're to love people and pray for them and forgive them when they hurt us. But in the overall scheme of things, we're to be praying, God, your ultimate kingdom come. Put evil out of its misery. Set up your justice for your name's sake, for your glory. That's the kind of prayer. And some say that Romans 12, 19 says, right, uh, that we shouldn't do that because it says that, that we are not to avenge ourselves, but allow God to do that because God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that is true. But again, that's exactly what the martyrs are saying. They're not saying they're gonna get vengeance on themselves. They're saying, Lord, you're gonna get vengeance. We're just simply praying, Lord, come quickly. Lord, bring vengeance now. Get justice now for yourself and be glorified. As we close, let's notice the condition of the martyrs in heaven. In verse 11, it says, then they were, and this is, this is beautiful. I mean, look, look at this. Hmm. How does a Christian know what they believe? <laughs> How, why, what is it that gives us assurance to stand in the midst of pain and, and suffering and ultimate death like these Christians? It's the words of God. The words of God. Those martyrs, by the way, that are under the throne of God, you know what gave them the grace to stand up to Nero and Domitia and, and others throughout the centuries? They had heard the word of God somewhere. They had heard the promises of God and they believed those promises more than the lies of this world that say, as the devil told Jesus, deny the father and I'll give you all these things. I'll give you this whole world. No, they said, no, no, there's a better truth. I don't need this stuff. I've got eternity. God says so. That's, that's, that's what, so, so look, folks, here is where we're filling up with truth so that one day we can stand when somebody puts a gun to our head and says, deny Christ. Deny Christ. And what's going to give us the, the strength to say no? This tonight, the words of God in our heart and the spirit bearing witness with those words saying, this is truth. Don't forsake your life. This is your life. And here it is. Here's where God answers those martyrs. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer, rest a little longer. <laughs> wow. Now, I don't want to stop right there. That's beautiful because that white robe, again, we've already seen it throughout Revelation and through the Bible. It's a picture of righteousness, total forgiveness, total cleansing. And God says, here, 
Remember, you are cleansed. You are righteous. You're safe. Just rest. What a word, right? That word is important right there. God tells those saints in heaven who have given all for him and poured their lives out, and now they are in his presence, he says, rest. That's what we trust, that God gives us a rest. We can be patient. And God is sovereign here. They prayed it, Lord, sovereign Lord, when are you going to do this? And he tells them, I'm in control. Just rest a little longer, a little longer. And that's why I say to all of us, right, in this world, <laughs> rest in Christ a little longer here. Just keep on keeping on. But in heaven, for these martyrs, here's what he says. What are they resting for? What are they waiting till? Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters, in the Greek that word means siblings, until their brothers and sisters should be complete. That's an interesting way to word that. It means to all those elect that Jesus talked about come to know Christ. You see, again, we're preaching the gospel and God is patient because he has sheep and he's come to save his sheep and he calls and his sheep hear his voice. And when he calls, they hear and they follow him. How is he calling? Through you and me, preaching the gospel. And as we preach the gospel to our friends and family and neighbors and co-workers, God is calling out people and he's going to save. You know what? The reason this is so exciting is that everybody who God calls, who is one of his elect, are going to be saved. That's, that's assuring. It assures us. He's got a plan. And he says, look, just wait a longer till all your brothers and sisters be complete and who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So not only is God sovereign over our, our salvation and our whole lives, he's also sovereign over our deaths. As he told Peter, he said, hey, here's the way you're going to die. Our days are numbered. We know that. God is sovereign over us. He knows our beginning from our end. He knows it all. We're not going to add one cubit, not, not one day to our stature by worrying about it. We just have to rest in him. But it's very interesting, isn't it? And we think, wow, how could this be? God's plan is to allow his people to die by the sword, famine, prison, rot. And again, the reason we feel this angst and confusion is because we're little infinite, I'm sorry, we're little finite <laughs> creatures who don't understand the infinite. All we see is the finite now. And for us, when this life's over, it's over. When we're, when we're sick or down, that's it, life's over here. But God sees the big picture and he realizes this is just the dress rehearsal. The, the, the life that he's planned for us for eternity, eye has not seen, ear has not heard what things he's prepared for those who love him. So that's what the perspective is that we have to see here. God is sovereign and God is good. And, and, and we think, wow, but Lord, you're letting Christians die by the sword and you're letting us be persecuted and suffer. Did he not allow his own son to be mocked and beaten and stripped and crushed for our salvation. And then that's why Jesus says, you are crucified with me. When you trust me, you're taking on what I am. And you're going to suffer as I suffered. 
and maybe die. But it's worth it. Why? Because of the white robes of righteousness that he has given us and because of the rest <laughs> that he has promised us. And they were not in agony or there's no purgatory for the believer. There's no place of suffering the rest of my sins out. No, no, no. These, these believers were immediately in the presence of God under the altar, given a white robe and told to rest. Just rest. That's our hope. And I want to close with Luke 9, 20, 23 through 24, because this is what Jesus told us. He said uh, uh, to, to those who would follow him, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now listen, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So this is the call from Revelation for us as confessing believers today to consider that cost. It's not just some flippant thing to say I'm a Christian, especially in our day and age. It may have been 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago in America, a, a cool thing to say. Today, it could be your death sentence. And going into the years that we're approaching, I guarantee you it's going to mean suffering, loss of job, loss of employment, and maybe jail time, and maybe death. I don't know. But has the word of God been illuminated to you enough? Has this, this weight of judgment from heaven against all ungodliness been made real enough to you to fear God's judgment more than anything man can do to you? <laughs> That's what Jesus said, right? Don't fear men who can kill the body. Don't fear a man who can destroy your body. Fear him who is able to destroy both your body and your soul in hell. That's who we're to fear. And repent of your sins and run to him and fall upon the grace he offers us in Christ. And therefore, we will make this choice and we'll say, you know what? I'll lose my life for that. And thereby losing my life and hiding it in Christ, I gain it. <laughs> I gain real life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that applies your word because without your Holy Spirit, we would either be afraid, confused, or bitter at what your word says. But your Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see. And our hearts begin to leap within us and at the glimmer of hope that there is a, a way of being forgiven and a way of receiving a white robe and, and being guiltless in your sight and entering into your rest and all the joys and the inheritance that you've established for us. Thank you, Father, for your word and your spirit and your gospel. Build your people today by your word. Strengthen us and give us the faith to continually marching forward, resting a little longer in your promises until we see you face to face. We pray all these things in Christ's name.